Board games are a great explanation for warfare. Plenty of concepts in war. Seizing objectives, sacrificing pieces, creating and modifying plans on the fly can be demonstrated on a board as easily as they can in real life. In chess, the battle was over when one side was able to trap and capture the king. Modern warfare is much less dependent on the capture of individual officers, even high-ranking flag officers, given the difference in political systems. But medieval warfare had what could almost be considered keystone armies. The capture or killing of a king could completely rout a pre-modern army, and could force them from the field. Alexander the Great did this twice in his campaign against Darius III at the Issus River and Galgamela, with a daring charge against the King of Kings which caused the entire Persian army to retreat following their fleeing leader. King Richard III of England attempted to take out the future Henry VII in the same fashion at Bosworth Field, and he almost succeeded before he was killed by Lord Stanley's charge to the rear. In chess, capturing the king is the only way to win. It doesn't matter what pieces you lose. If you checkmate the king, the victory is yours. And in ancient and medieval warfare, taking out the king or the general was a way for an outnumbered and outgunned force to seize victory from the jaws of defeat. Whether it's in chess or on the battlefield, decisions have a dramatic effect on victory and defeat. Sun Tzu even said, Victory depends upon taking advantage of the mistakes of the enemy, and countless great disasters have been made because of the careless decisions of single generals. I've talked a lot on this podcast about how successful commanders win battles and wars, and that's an important facet of military science. But there's a necessary corollary that follows. How does an unsuccessful commander lose a battle or a war. After all, if one general wins, the other general has to lose. But as we see, wars are rarely won or lost on single decisions. A singular blunder can have plenty of underlying causes. In Anatolia, a young and rising empire would take advantages of the mistakes of their older foe and seize a perfect chessboard victory, capturing the king. The moves of each form the perfect explanation of how an army can win and an army can lose. This is a battle of massacre. The Byzantine Empire went through plenty of ups and downs in its history, and as you might expect, the empire itself had a system to wage war, using the three concepts of the Themata, Tagmata, and Hetieria. Starting somewhere in the 7th century, the empire developed a system called the Themata system where the empire provided land to a stratigos, who would be both the civilian and military governor. This territory would be divided up into plots of land for soldiers into state-leased estates in exchange for military service. This reduced the need for foreign mercenaries and reduced the upkeep for the military. This also saved money and reduced conscription rates, which were very unpopular among the people for very obvious reasons. This provided an incentive to become a soldier and gave the Byzantines a good-sized, well-trained army. In addition to the Themata, there was the Tagmata, a smaller force of professional heavy cavalry retained by the emperor, and the Hetiera, a retainer of foreign mercenaries in the service of the empire. These heavy cavalry and infantry took on a role similar to the knight in European warfare, and supplemented with Byzantine horse archers, became a frightening effective force. The success of the empire leading into the 10th century 
changed the shape of the Byzantine military. Reconnaissance, light infantry, and raiding became more common as the Arabs and Byzantines would regularly raid each other's territory. More foreigners would come to court, and this included foreign mercenaries, the most famous of which were the Varangian Guard, established after the Christianization of the Kievan Rus. The warrior emperors of the empire focused intently on their elite corps and foreign Norman and Frankish mercenaries over the Thamata. Increasingly, the themes paid a cash payment instead of providing troops, and increasingly they stopped training as often as they should. The breakdown of the themes meant there was no manpower to call up for the army, and the eastern estates had no incentive to defend their land since the primary purpose of the theme was military service. While the core Tagmata forces were still as strong as they might have been, the Thimata were increasingly brittle, not ready for what was to come. This was not helped by the later emperors who focused increasingly upon the territory of Armenia. In 1022, Basil II forced the Armenian king to cede Armenia to the empire upon his death. In 1040, the Armenian king John III finally died and touched off a firestorm of a succession crisis for Armenia. When Constantine IX secured the Armenian capital of Ani in 1045, it appeared that the trouble would be over. But there was a problem with Armenia. The Byzantines had relied upon a fortress network to manage the eastern frontier in the various Arab-Byzantine wars as an effective means to bankrupt the various armies of the Abbasids and Umayyads. Any Arab invader had to maintain long siege trains to take more than even a few fortresses, while the Byzantines could sally forth and cripple enemy capability, waging an asymmetric war that even the mighty Abbasid and Umayyad caliphates were hard-pressed to win. With the annexation of Armenia, there was now a gaping hole in that network through Ani. Armenia had been a valuable buffer territory, but now with it, being incorporated into the Byzantine domain, it had now become a liability. Constantine IX did not help matters by focusing on bringing the Monophysite Church in line with the Eastern Orthodox Church by purging the clergy, creating great political instability and causing some of the Armenians to join the Seljuks, who provided them with invaluable local knowledge. Where the Byzantines had been experiencing stagnation and decline, the mighty Seljuk Empire was still on the rise. The Seljuks had actually been very friendly with the Byzantine Empire in the eras prior, as they both held a strong dislike of the nomadic Oghuz Turkmans. The Seljuks had founded their empire in 950 by Seljuk the Great near the Aral Sea. His grandson Tugril scored decisive victories from the Ghazanavids who ruled a sultanate that was located in present-day Iran, Afghanistan, and Pakistan. Later, he would secure the vital city of Baghdad when allied with the Abbasid Caliphate in 1055, and so secured himself a mighty empire from the Hindu Kush to the Levant, with a proud historic capital, Baghdad, as the crown jewel. Baghdad was one of the prized cities of the medieval Arab world, with a thriving economy and great halls of education, perfect as a headquarters for expanding the Seljuk Empire even further. The Seljuk Sultanate would be contested in a short succession war in 1063, the victor of which was Tugril's nephew, a courageous military commander and capable administrator dubbed the Heroic Lion, Alp Arslan. 
continuing the successes of his uncle, Arslan captured Cappadocia and Georgia, and when Arslan went to Armenia, there the Seljuks and the Byzantines finally met face to face. This wasn't to say that there was no contact between the Byzantine and the Seljuks. With chaos reigning in the Armenian capital of Ani, Constantine IX encouraged the Seljuks to raid as a deniable asset to secure the annexation of Armenia into the empire. After Constantine's death in 1055, the Empress Theodora would exile many of the nobles favored by her predecessor and concentrate power solely within the position and person of the emperor. Chief among these was the pretender Nikoferos Briennios, called Nikoferos Briennios the Elder because his son, with the same name, would also be a notable in Byzantine politics. Nikoferos had been declared emperor by the troops in the Balkans. Theodora's successor, Michael VI, returned Briennios's rank but refused to return his confiscated lands and estates. This angered the Anatolian military aristocracy, as Michael VI favored the estates of the West. These aristocrats elevated Isaac Komnenos, a famous last name that will become very important later in the history of the Byzantine Empire, as Isaac I. Isaac attempted to reform the military and reverse the decline, but he fell ill two years into his reign and abdicated to a monastery. The new emperor, Constantine X of the Ducas, slashed military budgets and raided funds allocated to repair frontier fortifications. He did this in order to favor the nobility and the clergy, and appointed political favorites to high military positions. These favorites treated their ranks as do-nothing positions, largely forgetting training, and continuing to use the themes as a source of cash. The Seljuk Sultan eagerly took notice of this instability and set his sights on the strife-ridden empire. Alp Arslan attempted to annex Armenia, but was checked by the Byzantines, and the two came to an uneasy peace treaty. In 1064, when the treaty expired, the Seljuks were able to successfully capture Ani, and over the course of the next three years, steadily incorporated the Armenian province into the Sultanate. The Byzantines counterattacked winning battles at Syria and Iconium, but losing to the great sultan himself in the field. However, Alp Arslan was quick to advance another peace treaty to Emperor Constantine, as he was more concerned with his neighbors to the south. Arslan was less concerned with the Byzantine Empire than he was with his other geopolitical rivals. After all, the Seljuks were in a very difficult geographic position, since they were between the Byzantine Empire and the Fatimid Caliphate and the latter of these two would be a fierce rival for political, religious, and military power. The Fatimids promoted Shia Islam, while the Seljuk Turks were practitioners of Sunni Islam. This Sunni-Shia schism largely revolves around the proper succession to the caliphate after the death of the Prophet Muhammad. The Sunnis favor Abu Bakr, while the Shia favor Ali. Now that's the primary reason but there are multiple theological and political differences along with this disagreement between the, the two sects. And these differences would cause a lot of bloodshed in the Islamic world, both before and after the 11th century. With this treaty with the Byzantines, Alp Arslan hoped for geopolitical security so that he could focus his expansion to the south, as the Fatimid Caliphate was considered his primary enemy. For the next two years, 
The two countries remained at peace with each other, but that's not quite the same thing as saying that nothing ever happened. While Alp Arslan was secure on his own throne, the central Turkic tribesmen that were ostensibly his subjects routinely disobeyed his orders, often obeying only when convenient or when compelled. To stop them from raiding his own people and causing domestic instability, Arslan settled the Turks on the Anatolian Peninsula, where they could raid against the Fatimids and Byzantines at their leisure. Whatever difficulties Arslan had, Constantine X, now over sixty years old, had it much worse. Constantine's wife, Eudokia, appointed Romanos Diogenes as counselor when the aging emperor fell ill. Both Eudokia and Romanos swore to uphold the heir, Michael Ducas, but when Constantine died, the two married and the purple passed to the new emperor, now styling himself Romanos IV. All of this intrigue happened in the span of twelve years, and it left the empire strapped for cash and rife with factionalism. To secure his throne, the new emperor envisioned a grand victory against the Seljuk Empire. Romanos led campaigns against the Seljuks almost from the day of his ascension in 1068, but he couldn't pin down the highly mobile Seljuks with their nimble horse archers and light cavalry. The lack of success emboldened Romanos's political rivals, who began doubting the emperor's competence and agitating to the point where Romanos could not safely leave Constantinople for fear of being dethroned. Entrusting the command to Isaac I's nephew Manuel, Romanos launched a larger campaign in 1069, but this ended in disaster with Manuel captured. Yet Manuel was able to turn this into a victory, as he was able to persuade the Turks to let him go and join up with the Byzantines instead. This saved face for both Manuel Komnenos and the emperor. Emperor Romanos IV then sent an envoy in 1071, hoping to renew the Seljuk-Byzantine peace treaty. Arslan accepted immediately, as he had hoped to pressure Aleppo, a vital Fatimid stronghold that posed a significant strategic threat to any Seljuk expansion southward into the Levant. This envoy, however, had been a ruse. Emperor Romanos had hoped to distract the Seljuks, so that they would spread their armies to the south so that he himself could invade from the west with a massive invasion force. Hoping to learn from his previous failures, Romanos decided to strike deep in Seljuk territory to the east, and force Arslan to respond with his own armies, and so he set his sights on the Seljuk city of Manzikert. The Byzantines held plenty of advantages over their Seljuk enemies, and one of the greatest ones that they had is that they had a lot more manpower. By the best historical estimates, the Byzantines had an army of somewhere around 40,000 men, while the Seljuks had somewhere around 20,000, though it's possible that the numbers could have even been lower than that. Alp Arslan's records suggest that he had a large force with him to sack the wealthy city of Aleppo, but resisting a Byzantine incursion had less chance for monetary gain, and thus troops were recorded as having deserted the Seljuk column during the march, meaning that Arslan could have very likely commanded somewhere closer to 15,000 rather than 20,000. Both troops had a highly skilled mercenary corps to supplement their army. The Seljuks had hired Cumin and Pechenegh horsemen to augment their own forces, while the Byzantines had Frankish and Norman infantry soldiers that they had come to rely on for generations. To take advantage of their superior numbers, 
the emperor commanded that the army was to be split in half. One went with the emperor as the main battle force, while the second was put under the command of Joseph Tarkaniotis, who went to capture the city of Hilat. Just then, right after that split, this army vanishes from the Byzantine records. Now this is a great source of confusion for students of the time period because it is very odd for a 20,000 strong army to simply not have anything recorded about it. Seljuk sources state that Alp Arslan crushed the army, but Tarkaniotis nor the official Byzantine histories record anything about it at all. Tarkaniotis himself suffered neither injury nor capture. While it was rather commonplace for historical records of the time period to be rife with propaganda and fabrication, it was very rare to just omit something entirely. It is entirely possible that Alp Arslan simply fabricated a great victory for himself to further glorify his own campaign, and without anything in the Byzantine records to support this, it is very unclear what actually happened. It's speculated that the army simply disbanded after seeing Arslan's army, or simply went home without fulfilling its objectives, but this is again very unusual not to have been recorded. Had there been some form of treachery, Darkaniotes would have almost certainly lost his position as Duke of Antioch, so what exactly happened was very strange. Whatever the mystery was, the effect of this was anything but unclear. The Byzantine army was now down to half strength and facing a masterful tactical commander in Alp Arslan. Romanus himself was easily able to take Manzikert on the 23rd of August, and he deployed his scouts to reconnoiter for the expected Seljuk response. On the next day, the Byzantine foraging parties noticed the Seljuks and retreated back to report. Romanus responded by dispatching an Armenian general named Basileses with a cavalry detachment for heavy reconnaissance and because their horses could pin down the Turkish light cavalry. Not believing that he was facing the full Seljuk army, Basileses was surrounded and taken prisoner, and his cavalry force was all but annihilated. A second force, under Nicopharis Brianos the Younger, the son of the earlier Nicopharis who plagued Empress Theodora's reign, was also surrounded, but they were able to fight their way back to the imperial fortifications. Already we see here that the Emperor Romanus is making critical mistakes and weakening his forces for the battle ahead. Alp Arslan is noticing these opportunities quickly and selecting the right tool to seize them effectively and maximize his chances for the battle ahead. Arslan's efforts to bring this to a successful conclusion was nowhere more apparent than the way he handled his column. The Seljuk Sultan was well equipped with the finest intelligence. He had his horsemen bringing him regular reports on the location and disposition of the enemy forces with which he could use to inform his strategic and tactical planning. New information was incorporated immediately, demonstrating this intellectual flexibility on the field that served him well throughout his campaigns in central Anatolia. Certainly, Arslan was aware that he was outnumbered significantly, which is why he made sure to weaken the Byzantine armies at Manzikert before the battle was joined. Seizing upon the minor victories he had won, Arslan dispatched messengers to speak with the roughly 1,000 Turkic mercenaries under the employ of the Byzantines and convince them to desert the emperor and just go home. The 500 Frankish and Norman mercenaries, seeing the flagging power of the Byzantines, also deserted the army. 
Arslan then followed this with an offer of peace, but Romanus IV refused this offer, as raising another mercenary army and supplying his Damata troops was very expensive. His security on the imperial throne would forever be challenged, and it would not put an end to the Seljuk raiding on the border territories. Romanus attempted to recall Tarkaniotis and bring the 20,000 troops that he had under his command to swell their ranks, but he was unable to be found. The emperor was now isolated and weakening, though he still enjoyed a commanding numerical advantage over the Seljuks. Not wishing to suffer more minor cuts that would further undermine his army's fighting power, Romanus decided that now it was time to engage in a full battle, and assembled his army to meet the main Seljuk force. On the left column, Romanus appointed General Briennios the Younger. On the right, he appointed his close friend, Theodore Aliates. The emperor himself decided to command the center of the army. Both men, and the emperor himself, were seasoned military commanders, and the emperor was not wrong to trust those men. But he made a critical personnel mistake when he appointed the commander of his reserves, Andronikos Ducas nephew of the former Emperor Constantine X, and cousin to Michael Ducas, the young son who had been maneuvered out of the purple by Romanos. Across the field, Alp Arslan arranged his formation into a crescent style, with his wings forward. Before the battle, Arslan assembled before his forces and gave a speech, dressed in a white Islamic funeral shroud, demonstrating to his army that he was not prepared to die helping to soothe the anxieties his men undoubtedly felt about dealing with the famed Byzantine army. In this move, Arslan echoed the great general Hannibal at the Battle of Cannae, telling his men that he was not afraid to die by positioning himself where the fighting was going to be the thickest. The effect that he had on his army was electrifying. The Turkish primary sources of the battle, what few that remain, all described the faith that the soldiers had in their sultan and even when giving ground to the numerically superior enemy, the image of their sultan giving that pre-battle speech in that white shroud, the man who had methodically dismantled so much of the enemy before the battle had even started, kept morale high. The foot soldier and the cavalryman both could take comfort in the presence of their general, keeping them fixed upon their purpose while the chaos of war raged all around them. The emperor elected for a slow advance of his infantry forces toward the Seljuk army, pushing forward past the wings, which elected to fight in the traditional Seljuk style of fire-and-retreat tactics. The left and right flanks, in a much tighter formation, suffered tremendous casualties against the heavy bow fire and were unable to pin down the horse archers thanks to their superior mobility. With the loss of the cavalry units under Basilesis before the battle, the heavy Byzantine cataphractoid couldn't be used as a mobile pin to freeze the Seljuk cavalry and get them torn down by the more numerous Byzantine infantry. Yet despite this difficulty, the emperor was able to reach the Seljuk camp by the afternoon, seizing valuable supplies and raising the morale of the relatively unblooded center. With night starting to fall, the emperor ordered a tactical withdrawal so that he could continue the battle for the next day. And this is where everything begins to fall apart on the battlefield of Manzikert. Andronikos Dukas started spreading the word that the emperor had been killed in battle and quit the field entirely. As the Byzantines began to retreat, the Seljuk cavalry reformed and charged the out-of-position Byzantine lines, breaking the right under Aliatis. The reserves, who were supposed to support any flagging Byzantine troops, did not move to reinforce them, 
and Aliates believed they had been betrayed by their auxiliaries, and that routed the right wing. The left, under Briennios, attempted to rally, but the false news of the emperor's death hurt them as well. The morale of the left wing was shattered, and they routed, cutting their way free, but losing roughly a thousand of their five thousand strong forces. The emperor's center was now completely alone and isolated, and the Seljuk armies noticed and charged in on them. They cheered as the enemy broke before leaving their central forces exposed, and the famed Varangian guard, the elite mercenaries and bodyguard of the emperor, lost much of their number. Despite the Armenian troops facing great suspicion, which was motivated by a combination of prejudice, religious tensions, and the fact that some of whom had actually deserted before the battle, a loyal unit attached to the emperor's center fought incredibly valiantly, to the point that even in the middle of the battle, he had promised much rewards to themselves personally and their people, stating that their loyalty and capability was beyond reproach. Unfortunately, neither the valor of the Varangian guard nor the Armenians could save the day, and the emperor was captured by the Seljuk army. When Romanos IV was brought before the sultan, the sultan gasped. He was surprised to think that this dirty and bloody figure was the great emperor of the Romans. If the stories were to be believed, Alp Arslan used the emperor as a footstool to make a dramatic statement as to the power and prestige of the mighty Seljuk army and the skill of its great commander. The exchange between the two has been immortalized in histories the world over when Arslan and Romanos discussed the after-effects of the battle and what might have been. And what would you do, O Emperor of the Romans, had I become your prisoner? I would have you executed, or perhaps paraded down the streets of Constantinople. My punishment is far heavier. I forgive you and set you free. What was it that caused the emperor to fail so dramatically? He only lost roughly 8,000 soldiers in total, so the Byzantine military itself was not completely crippled, yet Anatolia would be largely swallowed by invasion. Nor was the Seljuk military invincible. Georgia and Celia would score dramatic victories against the Seljuk Sultanate. Romanus's campaign was sunk not by a single decisive mistake, but a series of blunders that compounded themselves. Simultaneously, Alp Arslan did not win his victory over the Byzantines by a single brilliant maneuver such as Alexander charging Darius III at Galgamela. Instead, he constantly looked for victory and worked to make it happen. Strategic mistake of the open Armenian defenses were a vulnerability, but the empire's focus inward created factionalism and left political divisions that could be exploited in a crisis. The Byzantine military was a complicated beast, at times a threat to the empire, but it was also the means of its salvation. The weakening of the Tagmata robbed the empire of strategic death, and the elite mercenary corps, which were often political pawns or mercenaries, could be bribed or simply disappear if the war didn't appear feasible. Similarly, Arslan's politics achieved a masterstroke with his relaxed hold on his Turkmen allies. They could be domestic trouble, but rather than attempting to use a heavy hand to corral them, he simply offloaded the problem onto somebody else, saving himself a lot of headaches and enriching himself at the expense of the Byzantines. True to his statement, Arslan did indeed set the emperor free, with a military escort to return him to Constantinople. En route, he met Nikoferos Briennios, 
roughly one week after the battle's conclusion, and returned to his capital. Surprisingly, Arslan was also as generous with his peace treaty, ceding Armenia to the Byzantines and securing his border, hoping for the opportunity to attack the powerful and wealthy Fatimid Caliphate as he had hoped to do before Romanus's campaign. While Arslan was indeed forgiving, Andronikos Dukas was not. Before long, there would be a civil war for the purple, with Andronikos championing his cousin, Michael, and succeeding in capturing Romanos and blinding him, the traditional Byzantine method for disqualifying a pretender to the Byzantine throne. As for Alp Arslan, he would not long outlive the battle. In 1072, about 17 months after the Battle of Manzikert, he would be assassinated while preparing for a war with the Harmazid dynasty of Iran, another geopolitical rival for power. The players would not long outlive Manzikert, but the moves they made certainly reverberated throughout history. Alp Arslan did indeed get the king, as any chess master needs to do so. And so, by any conceivable measure, he was the winner of the chess mats at Manzikert. Not long after this game was concluded, Pope Gregory VIII would desire to put the power and armies of Western Europe on his side of the board, and this would be one of the sparks of the Crusades, an entirely new game. The conquest of Anatolia after Manzikert by relatively independent Turkish nobles would lead to the collapse of the great Seljuk state, and from there, a small and relatively unknown Beylik named Osman, about two centuries after Manzikert, would gain his own small territories. Osman would be a minor player during his own life, but his name would echo for centuries, rendered into many languages the world over, the most famous of which was Ottoman, and his name would rule Anatolia for roughly six centuries after his death. In history, no one is ever finished from playing the game. As long as they're alive, new players can and do emerge from all corners. The results of these games become the boards for the next match, and they continue to do so until the end of history. Thanks for listening.